Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for listening to The Next Track. This is episode number 73, um, which doesn't sound like a big number to me. And then I realized that that means we've already done 72 episodes. And that's a really big number. That's a, and that's a great number, too. you got to admit, 72. So if you've been with us for all of those 72 episodes, thank you very much. And if you're just joining us and this is your first, well, you got a lot of catching up to do, don't you? Uh, we have a guest today. Uh, he's been with us on well over 100 of those 72 episodes. Andy Doe is with us. Andy, it's always great to see you. Thank you very much for having me back on the show again. I asked Andy to join us on the show today because I've got a conundrum. Now, if you've been listening to the show recently, I've been talking about wanting to upgrade the audio equipment that I use in my home office. And this is where I listen to music a lot. I currently have a Yamaha RN301. It's a network receiver, so I can listen to music using AirPlay, either from my computer or from my iPhone. And this is a receiver that costs 200 pounds. It sounds fine to me, but I keep thinking as we talk about audio equipment that, you know, maybe if I spent a little more money, the sound would be better. Maybe 500 pounds, I could go for an amplifier or receiver. But there have been a lot of problems trying to navigate this. One of the problems is that audio equipment can be so expensive that when I look around to try and find something to upgrade to, I come up to a sort of infinitesimal range of prices. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to Stereophile's fall 2017 edition of recommended components for integrated amps and receivers. And you start on this list at $13,000. The next one is $50,000. The next one is $5,500. These are the prices of cars. So I have this feeling that if I only want to spend a few hundred pounds on an amplifier, that I'm just not catered to in this market. And it makes me feel uncomfortable enough that I may eventually never just upgrade and be satisfied with what I have. It is a very, very confusing market. And it's not helped by the amount of nonsense that's written about equipment or by the quantity of products that aren't actually terribly useful, but are spectacularly expensive pieces of sculpture to put in your house. If we're going to help you through this conundrum, I think the first question to ask you is, is there actually anything wrong with the amplifier that you've got? Well, that's a good point. I don't know that there's anything wrong, but I keep having this feeling that maybe I'm missing out on something. Maybe it could be better. And, and I've heard the difference going from cheap speakers to good speakers, from my first Radio Shack stereo to, you know, a real good amplifier. And, and I just have this sort of itch in the back of my mind thinking that if I spent a little bit more, it might sound better. Ah, you are experiencing audio ennui. Yes. So part of the reason why you're unsure whether or not it would sound better if you spent more on an amp is because it's difficult to come up with a vocabulary to describe the qualities of an amplifier. But also the reason that you're concerned about this at all without actually having any identifiable problem to solve is is probably because you you spend a lot of time immersed in the entertainment technology media where you're bombarded by messages telling you that better amplifiers will make your music sound better and if you spend your whole time in a in a bentley showroom 
then inevitably you're going to come to think that there's there's something wrong with your Toyota. But see, that's an example. When when we leased two new Toyotas in the spring, we went to the Toyota showroom and we got a Yaris hybrid and an Igo. So the Yaris is called a subcompact, I think, which is kind of weird because it's not that small. And the Igo is even smaller. So it's a sub-subcompact. Now, they have faster, more fancier cars. They have an, an SUV and four-wheel drive things. It costs maybe three times the price of our car. But if I compare that to amplifiers, that would be my amplifier at 200 pounds. The top-of-the-line amplifier in the showroom would be six or 800 pounds, which wasn't the case. You know, this stereophile thing, it starts... The first one on the list is 13,000. The next one is 50,000. That's like if you had all of the cars in the world sold in the same showroom from the Toyota Igo up to the handmade Bentley, whereas you never get the same sort of people wanting to buy the Toyota and the Bentley. I don't know. I mean, what, you've got to think about the, the context of this. You're looking at Stereophile, and Stereophile is a, is a publication that is funded in large part by advertisements for small volume high margin electronics products your stereophile doesn't exist because people buy yamaha amplifiers in large volume and small margin stereophile exists because somebody can be occasionally convinced to buy a bel canto design black amplification system fifty thousand dollars and i I don't know what that thing is. Unfortunately, there's no links to the products in this list. They they refer to the issues in which they were reviewed, but there are no links. So you can't really look any further. I, you could always Google it. Well, that's, that's a really nice piece of um, old media, new media integration there. But uh, <coughs> I, they don't need to sell many Belcanto amps at $50,000 for it to be worth running a whole magazine. But they would have to sell a truckload of of your Yamaha amps, and so, so you know what what Stereophile exists for. The reason Stereophile exists is to help sell these products. Stereophile is a mouthpiece for this industry, funded by this industry. But so, where does someone like me, an average music listener who, as everyone knows, really likes music, where does someone like me go to get the information about this sort of product? Well, this is a tough one, isn't it? Because you're trapped between a, a retail environment, which is almost totally unsuitable for the product, because, you know, you want to buy a car, you can read reviews of cars by people who are discussing cars in real-world terms, and then you can go to a dealership, having narrowed it down, you can go to a dealership and try out some cars on the roads that you drive your normal car around. But when it comes to an amplifier... You're reading primarily terribly tainted bullshit and you're trying them out, if at all, in totally unrealistic circumstances, not in your home, but in the listening room in a, in a dealership and often connected up to a bunch of stuff you don't have. So it's not, a, it's not a fair comparison at all. Most likely not the same speakers that I have, for example. And and that's a very big difference. Yeah, speakers will have quite a big impact on the way that an amplifier sounds, as will the room it's in. And typically when they set up a listening room in a hi-fi retail environment, they'll set up the room pretty well. Uh, the speakers will be in just the right place. The listening position will be in just the right place. The room will be quiet. It will be pretty dead. 
and the music will be loud. Yes. And and this will sound exciting, especially when immediately before sitting down to listen to it, you're told this is going to be great. Yes. And, you know, it would be really nice if every time I walked into the room, uh, some guys with trumpets played a fanfare first. <laughs> it would be great if right before I turned my stereo on, uh, somebody in a suit who looked like they knew what they were talking about said, this is going to sound fantastic. Uh, but but that, that doesn't happen at home. And so inevitably, it's, it's not a fair comparison. If you could afford that $50,000 amp, you could also afford a major domo to play the trumpet fanfare and tell you that it's going to sound great. Can you imagine what that job advert would read like? <laughs> I were, I'm going to put that out on Craigslist just, just to read the applications that come in. So talking about retail, it's interesting because here in the UK, there is a chain of stores called Richer Sounds. They sell everything from audio to TVs and, you know, all the sort of standard home equipment. And they have like 50 stores. We don't have one too close here, but there are a number in various cities. And when I lived in York, I bought a TV there. They have small listening rooms. And I don't think, Doug, do you do you have a chain in the U.S. that's like that, that does hi-fi and TV? That It's not like a big, it's not like the corner of a supermarket that's selling the hi-fi stuff. There used to be many more, but the only thing I can think of now is like, a big box store like uh, like Best Buy, but there used to be a lot of you know these audio shops that you could go into, like uh, Crazy Eddie. You remember Crazy Eddie? Oh sure, yeah. I used to buy from Crazy Eddie in New York. Yeah, his prices are insane. And there used to be other regional chains. For instance, in Connecticut there was Lizer Sound, and in Providence and Boston there was Tweeter, etc. And most of these places have just gone away. And there are still boutiquey uh, sort of hi-fi shops you can go to, but. As far as like chains, I think, you know, big box stores are it. So, so at this store here, you can go in and use the listening room and try stuff out. Now, the other option is a dedicated hi-fi store. And when I lived in New York, I went into a hi-fi store like that to try out some Grado headphones. And I was interested in, in Grado's and I tried three different models. And it was the kind of very hushed store where everyone spoke in low tones and there was carpeting and there was sound absorbing panels and all that. And there was a little living room type setup so you could listen to it. And going into the store to talk about spending maybe as much as 200 pounds for a pair of headphones, I kind of got the feeling I wasn't welcome. So when you go into these hi-fi stores, they want to sell, they want to sell you an amp for 5,000 pounds. And their clientele is probably the people who are buying that range of price. And I just didn't feel that they really cared about me as a customer, that, you know, it would have been at best chump change if they sold me headphones. Sure, and it is obviously central to the business model of a store like that that they're selling these very high-end products because because they can't afford to have a store with nice quiet store with no customers in it without shifting their five thousand pound or fifty thousand pound amplifiers. But but you know if they sell the headphones, you can go in there and buy the headphones, and it's uh, one of the few products that you can really realistically try out in a shop. True. Because the headphones just have... It doesn't depend on the damping in the room. Yeah, exactly. So long as it's fairly quiet in the shop, you could try the headphones out yeah. anywhere. So what I'm finding is that there's really no middle ground for be, between someone who's going to just buy something on Amazon because they want a surround sound system and they buy a package and someone who is at the audiophile price range who's willing to spend more than the price of their car on their sound system. And, and it kind of frustrates me in in the sense that it's it's as if this large clientele is ignored 
but maybe this clientele doesn't exist anymore. I mean, people don't have stereos in their homes like they used to. You know, go back 20 years and everyone had a stereo of some sort. And now they just have Bluetooth speakers. So is this part of the sort of natural fragmentation of the market into, on the one end, you've got the high-end audio stuff, and on the low end, you've got the Bluetooth because no one cares about sound quality? Well, I think that's definitely a part of what's going on here. It's been a, it's been a part of the natural evolution of of the the music consumption market, but but also, of course, the retail space in general. That you know, there's been this consolidation. There are there are huge chain stores, and there's online. Um, you've also you've also seen this this long running trend for for middle market consumer hi fi. All sounds good enough to be marketed on features rather than on sound quality. And it's only at the very top end of the market where you have hardly any buttons and knobs on on a piece of equipment and you get ever more florid explanations of why it will sound better than a cheaper competing competitor's product. So it does it does leave you it does leave you kind of between a, a rock and a hard place, doesn't it? But but at, at the end of the day, you've got you've got this kind of invented problem that um, you started to doubt your amplifier. You started to believe because because the market is telling you that a, a superior amplifier is available, um, and yet there's nowhere to go and try out that better amplifier or get really good information about that that better amplifier. And and that I think is really telling that these. Better amplifiers do exist. They're produced by uh, large, or these more expensive amplifiers do exist. They're sold by large mass market uh, electronics companies, uh, Yamaha, Sony, Pioneer, making amplifiers that are more expensive than the one that you have. And anyone who wants to buy those amplifiers is in a similar position to you. And it is highly unlikely that those people are more curious, that all the people buying these products are more curious than you, are more knowledgeable than you are looking into this more more carefully, which I think is telling about the consumer behavior in this in this part of the market. Well, if I take Yamaha as an example, they have eight or 10 amplifiers and eight or 10 network receivers. So mine is a network receiver. And the 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 top end of their amplifier line is something like 2,500 pounds. And then there's another one at about 1,200, which has nice VU meters on it. And most of them are under a thousand pounds. The the top end of the network receiver is about seven hundred pounds, and it has VU meters too. But they've still got this. They've got this price range that goes from relatively inexpensive. I'm pretty sure that you can get a hundred pound amplifier to still reasonable. In other words, I would say twenty five hundred pounds is reasonable in the sense that if you compare it to the prices in the stereophile list it's lower than most of what they're recommending. So the 2,500 pound is for the person who's got the money to spend, probably doesn't care about the sound quality, just wants the amplifier that's bigger and has the bigger VU meters and more buttons on it. Right, but it's also, it's, it's kind of plausible as, a, as, as an upper limit to what they're able to improve upon over yeah. something that costs two or 300 pounds. This is what I wonder. It's like you've got a $200 amp over here and a $2,000 amp over here. What is the 10-factor difference? I mean, it's not going to sound 10 times better. It certainly won't. Yeah, that would be ridiculous. Is it 10 times more efficient? Is it? Will it last 10 times longer? Is assuming, it, is assuming that the features are all there. 
right? That you're not adding something to have better features. I I can't see, and again, please listeners write in and comment on this show. I know a lot of people are going to disagree with us here. Please tell us why a $50,000 amplifier sounds that good that it's worth $50,000. I think no matter what you do, it's going to be an incremental improvement. Andy and I were talking before the show, you were talking about you were explaining the amplifiers that the Abbey Road technicians use when recording. Yeah, well, um, they are expensive amplifiers. Um, and there's a separate one for each speaker. And and they have a big transformer in them. And they have these great big capacitors in them. And these are, these are things that you can put in an amplifier so that um, the, the capacitors are there to make sure that the the amp can access great big gulps of power when it really needs it without relying on its its input power supply. So the capacitor serves sort of like a buffer, right? That stores power until it's needed suddenly? Yeah, kind of. Like, um, And it's something you actually see uh, pe- people who put massive, massive amplifier systems in their cars often have to use these because otherwise the headlights dim every time the bass drum goes <laughs> you get a ticket for that i mean you you're talking we're, we're talking here we're talking here about a, a level of power which can also make the roof flex and the windscreen shatter but that's that's a, a <laughs> whole other culture of competitive car audio that we can we can talk about another time but th- there are certainly there are certainly features there are components there are circuits that you can add to an amplifier that make it more sophisticated you can make an amplifier operate more efficiently by using different types of circuitry. You can also add simple or more sophisticated error correction so that it's comparing the output of the amplifier with the input of the amplifier and trying to adjust one to match the other in a kind of dynamic way. And this is this is how when amps advertise very, very low levels of distortion, this is this is how they're achieving it. And it is, of course, possible to measure those things, the quantity of distortion, the amount of power it can produce, the signal-to-noise ratio, these are things which are testable in clearly readily detectable quantities, and it is recorded in a relatively simple way under the specifications of any amplifier you look at. So you, you, can, you can tell whether or not one Yamaha amplifier sounds better than another because it will have, if it sounds better, it'll maybe have a higher signal-to-noise ratio, it'll have uh, less total harmonic distortion. It might be more powerful. These are these are things that you can check. But will these numbers tell me if the sound is, and I quote, reproduced with color, body, scale, melodic and rhythmic drive, and believable spatial presence? End quote. In my opinion, if any of those things mean anything at all, they would be they would be set, determined in a in an uneditable way at the point at which the record was finished. And uh, it's, it's, it's kind of too late to hope for better rhythmic drive from a piece of equipment whose job is to make it louder. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's what an amplifier does, right? This is, this is, this is the, this is the make it louder box. Yeah. And, and that's actually interesting because it, are we actually, I don't want to go into an analysis of the amplifier as amplifier. And and we started um, 
a series two episodes ago with Chris Conacher. We're going to talk about different hi-fi components and, and how they work more or less. So I don't want to get into that. But if all an amplifier does is make the sound louder, then the only thing that it can do is make the sound louder without distortion. Am I missing something? No, that's pretty much it, right? It, you don't want it to change the sound. It can make it louder. Yeah. Yeah, so it can make it more louder and it can make it louder whilst messing it up less. Like Those are the two things you can hope for as real measurable outcomes from a from an amplifier it can also have nicer buttons it can have more buttons it can have more plugs in the back so you can connect more stuff up to it it might have uh, an aerial on the back so that you don't have to plug stuff into it at all it might have a remote control it might have all sorts of other toys built into it but at the end of the day an amplifier is a make louder box and all make louder boxes mess up the sound a little bit, but it can make it more louder or it can mess it up less. So it's unlikely that a specific amp is going to have, and I quote, detail, drive, and forward momentum, close quote, that's different from another. That sounds like a fundamental misunderstanding of Newtonian physics. <laughs> okay, I think we'll not go into Newtonian physics in this episode, but if you if you subscribe to the podcast, we might do it at some point. I mean, you know, if it, if it, if it does have forward momentum, then definitely don't sit in a central listening position, maybe off to one side. Good point. Interestingly, here's another description from the same stereophile page, describing an amplifier as, and I quote, a well-built amplifier that offers a lot of power with very low distortion at an affordable price, close quote. That, to me, sounds like this is describing what an amplifier does. Yeah, that's an amplifier that does its job. And it may be damning with faint praise there. It may also be that it was priced at a level that did not require any colourful but fundamentally meaningless metaphors. $1,700. Sold. <laughs> Compared to yeah. the other ones, these are, that's, that's cheap, true. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that, that looks like a bargain for the one and only reason that it is listed alongside something with forward momentum. Well, here's another one at 13000 And again... I quote, a hard charging, forceful delivery of the music, strong micro and macro dynamics, stupendous bass reproduction, a wide and layered sound stage, and black backgrounds. Black backgrounds. Close quote. Well, this is actually something I've read a few times, and I think it's a way of saying that when the amplifier is silent, it's silent. In other words, no hiss or hum. But I would expect at $13,000 that there'd be no hiss or hum. I would expect at $1,000 there would be no hiss or hum. Good point. Even my 200-pound amplifier has no hiss or hum when it's on silent. Um, and if it does, that means you've got a ground loop or you've got a problem with the circuitry inside the amplifier, right? Yeah, absolutely. But the thing is that when you're reviewing an amplifier for $13,000, you can't say it didn't make a hiss when there was nothing plugged into it because it, because that's like that's like reviewing a bentley continental and saying it, it, it didn't roll away when i put the handbrake on yeah. um just i don't want to go through all of this but some of these things um, i just find quite stunning here's someone i'm, I'm not going to mention the name of the amp you can search on the page the amplifier quote directed my attention toward how the players attacked their instruments period close quote i I don't know. I mean, you know. How I, can a make louder box make the attack a pizzicato, for instance, sound more pizzicato-y? I, I don't know. More to the point, I, I did a, a degree in a 
music performance and then and then half a postgrad degree in music performance before getting a real job uh, and it may be that it's only in the second half of the postgraduate degree uh that I didn't do, that they teach you how to attack your instrument <laughs> in the first place. My, my instrument was a bit too expensive to ever attempt that. Okay, so where does this leave me or anyone else who's listening who wants to buy an amplifier? Uh, on the one hand, you, you got to start with your feature set. And in my case, the feature set was I wanted AirPlay, and the, the one that I have now does AirPlay over Ethernet. I wanted two speaker zones because I have two pairs of speakers, and I wanted it to make the music louder. Now. I could rule out a number of amplifiers that don't have the two speaker zones and don't have the airplay. I could get pretty much any amplifier and use another device to receive the airplay, like an old Apple TV or, or something like that. But you can start if you've got specific features that you really need like that, and you can whittle down your selection. But beyond that, again, what does it come down to? Doug and I have been, past few weeks, we've been looking at audio equipment porn, all these great VU meters and buttons and knobs and levers and all that. And there's something to be said for having a device like that. I love a VU meter. Yeah. Kirk and I both have a VU meter fetish. This is um, something that comes up every time we, we start talking in this vein. Um, you have a setup that is working adequately, and yet you feel you need to get um, something that there's something better out there for you. you. There's a better make louder box for you, but your current make louder box is working fine. But, but exactly. But this behavior here, this this we've we've captured one from the wild, and we have him sitting here. The, Kirk, our our specimen of of the irrational audiophile, is able to explain to us through the very existence of this episode how it is that it's possible to sell things that don't really do anything to people who want to listen to music. Because because Kirk has no problem at all with his amplifier. There is nothing wrong with your amp. You have a perfectly nice amp. Yep. You, but you've got this, this niggling doubt somehow that... That it could just be a little bit better. But, and if you applied this this kind of thinking to anything else in your life, then you know, you'd be on your seventh marriage by now. Well, no, no, don't don't forget. I'm a technology journalist, so so I'm constantly comparing technology devices, right? When I buy a new computer, I look at, you know, the different models of the iMac that are available and I choose the one that suits me. When I buy a laptop, it's the same. So, it it's part of my work is to look at technology and compare it. But I agree that this has come from the the thought that maybe my audio equipment just isn't good enough, or maybe it could be a little bit better. And I somehow owe it to the people who read my writings and who listen to this podcast to have something a little bit better. But since I've been thinking about this for a couple of months, I've probably spent more time on this. I probably could have bought a thousand pound amplifier and generated a thousand pounds of work with the amount of time I've been researching this. So there, of course, you get to another law of diminishing returns, that the more you think about these things, the more time it takes, and the the more you go down this sort of rabbit hole and not find anything. True, true but, but, but let's be clear here. Nobody is spending $50,000 on an amplifier because they are paid so much money that it is not <laughs> worth their time to... Figure out whether or not a fifty thousand pound amplifier actually sounds better. Like that—that's insane. <laughs> well, that's the whole magical thinking part of of this this industry. And I was saying to Doug before the show, I find it odd that audiophiles talk about this as a hobby. 
a hobby for me is gardening or stamp collecting. It's not buying <laughs> make make it louder boxes that are more expensive than your car just because someone says they're better. Yeah, and when when the one that you have is already capable of making it louder than you want it to be. But but at, at the end of at the end of the day, I think I think we should be we should be really happy that the magical thinking that results in in this kind of irrational purchasing pattern and the the fake news ecosystem that allows these products to exist and and be curated for a, a, a marketplace has had its impact completely limited to audio products uh, because because if that quantity of fake news and and that quantity of magical thinking were to leak out into more important matters, then the world would be in a huge amount of trouble. And thankfully, electorates are smarter than that. On that note, thanks very much, Andy, for joining us again. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, neither of us got new gear this week, so we're going to have to listen to our next track picks on our old gear. Kirk, what are you listening to? My next track this week is an original cast recording of a musical. Yes, you've heard that right. You've probably figured out from my musical taste that I'm not a musical fan, musical theater fan. But I saw something really good in London a few weeks ago. It's called Girl from the North Country. It's based on Bob Dylan's songs written by Connor McPherson. And it takes about 15, 18 Dylan songs and it sort of weaves them into a story. And while the story itself isn't great, this is one of the most enjoyable theater experiences I've had in a long time. It's full of energy. The singing is good. It's very alive. And so this is playing at the Old Vic Theater in London. And the original cast recording is out in the UK. And it's coming out in the US on the day that this episode will be released. There are, let's see, there are 19 songs in it from Sign on the Window, Went to See the Gypsy, to Blind William McTell, Like a Rolling Stone, um, Hurricane, Forever Young. And in this play, the songs are not all sung completely. Some of them are just a couple of verses. You know, Hurricane's an eight-minute song, and there's only three verses in the play. But the actors in this play sing these songs with a great deal of heart. I'm not generally a fan of Dylan cover albums. You know, lots of musicians record Dylan cover albums, like Brian Ferry did one a few years ago, which was eminently forgettable. But there is there is a, a feeling that comes through in this throughout the entire performance, throughout the way that they interpret these songs. And the musical arrangements are extremely good. If you're a Dylan fan and feel like me and you don't like cover albums, then, you know, maybe avoid it. But uh, there's just something really nice about this. This play has been extremely popular. It's gotten great reviews. It's very possible it'll eventually transfer to Broadway, in which case you might have a chance to see it if you're over there in the U.S. If you are in the U.K. and you get a chance, don't miss it. It's a really enjoyable performance. Doug, what have you been listening to? When I was a kid, my parents listened to a lot of traditional jazz out of New Orleans, and it wasn't until later that I realized that Dixieland wasn't the only thing that came out of New Orleans. It, in fact, is a melting pot for all kinds of great music. And Dr. John was the guy that turned me on to a lot of that. Now, there's a new remastered box set by Dr. John covering his ATCO recordings in the 1970s. And I think this has been around for a number of years, but has just been re-released and remastered. Now, these are his first official recordings. Dr. John, or as he was known at the time, Mac Rubinak, 
had been in some popular local bands in New Orleans in the 50s, and then during the 60s he got out to California, got working as a session guy, notably with the, uh, with the famous Wrecking Crew. He was an anonymous sideman on tons of recordings. And then he created his Dr. John the Night Tripper persona, a sort of voodoo Creole medicine man musician who also happened to play blues and boogie-woogie. Now, this Atco set has uh, the early New Orleans voodoo of his first album, Grease Grease, which has I Walk on Gilded Splinters, ably covered by Humble Pie on their famous live album. The Professor Longhair-inspired Dr. John's Gumbo, which is just straight boogie-woogie piano stuff. The Right Place, which had his two hits, Right Place, Wrong Time, and Such a Night. And his last Atco album, uh, Desitively Bonnaroo, which was produced by Alan Toussaint, another New Orleans musicologist. Now, there are seven albums in total, and they cover lots of different musical styles from in and around New Orleans. And I've listened to some of it already, and it's, it's fun to hear how each of his recordings is a little different from the last, but they still have that New Orleans feel in it. And let me just interject here parenthetically that while Dr. John is a terrific piano player, don't ever miss a chance to hear him play the Hammond organ. He's incredible there, too. Dr. John, the Atco Albums Collection, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.